This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. We hear about educational privatization a lot these days. My Twitter feed is filled with countless stories about how Betsy DeVos is going to privatize education in America, or how Bridge International has privatized education in some African countries. Even the first three shows of Fresh Ed, way back in 2015, looked at how privatization has gone global. But do we really know how it's happening? How privatization as an educational policy is moving around the world? And what effect is it having on governments? The process of national and local governments enacting policies that advance private interests in education is rather complex and often opaque to the general public. My guest today, Stephen Ball, has written a series of books looking at educational privatization. In his latest book, edu.net, co-written with Carolyn Juneman and Diego Santori, he explores through network ethnography the evolution of the global education policy community that is advancing privatization. We're trying to understand policy mobility. How do these policies get moved around the world? Who does it? What are the mechanisms involved? Stephen Ball is a distinguished service professor at the Institute of Education, University College London. Stephen Ball, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. Nice to talk to you. So you've done quite a lot of work lately on global education policy networks of educational privatization. Can you just quickly explain, you know, what that means? What does that term mean in in your opinion? Okay, well, I've been involved in a trajectory of work over quite a number of years now, starting from the UK and then expanding outwards globally. And at the core of that, there have been a set of of books of which um, we're talking about the latest one. At the the core of that is really a concern about the changing nature of governance and in relation to that policy. A shift which is taking place in many, indeed the majority of countries around the world, from traditional bureaucratic central administrative systems of government towards much more complex, multifaceted Um, open, diverse, what I call heterarchical systems of governance, which which include a whole range of new actors in in the work of policy. So at at one level, I've been trying to understand that, that shift. And across that shift, one of the key drivers and one of the key changes is uh, the, the move of public services towards either the uh, involvement of the private sector directly by privatisation or the involvement of the private sector uh, through contracting out uh, of public sector services. But also uh, in that uh, notion of privatisation, I'm including businesses, but also third sector organisations, philanthropies, charities, uh, social enterprises. They're all getting involved in public uh, sector work. So it's trying to see that process, monitor it, understand it on a global scale. 
so what have you found? I mean, is privatization this key driver of this shift from government to governance, as you're saying? Is privatization, does it look similar or have similar qualities uh, around the world in your research? Um, I should say it's, it's a driver and, and an effect in some ways. It's, it's, it's a, uh, uh, it contributes to the process of change, but it, it's also an outcome of the process of change. Uh, and that's because increasingly governments, the state, are involved in a, a process of auto-reform. They're reforming themselves, changing the way they work, their modalities and their form. And, and as part of that, it's creating spaces and opportunities for privatisation. And that has both common elements. I mean, there are a number of uh, kind of privatisation tropes which are the same everywhere, the same models so you can privatise by putting uh, a whole service out tender and trans transform it into a private form of provision. And that happened in the UK in the, in the 1980s under Margaret Thatcher. So gas, electricity, the railways, British Airlines, British Steel were all transformed into uh, private sector services. But as I mentioned earlier, there's, a, there's another model now which is contracting out and that's the involvement of the private sector in uh, the delivery of services that remain part of the state but are actually run and delivered by the private sector. And yes, you can, you can see those in very diverse locations around the world. So in the... Um, but there are variations. So in the book, we concentrate mainly on, on five countries, or start with five countries, because this is very much a connected-up, complex network of relations that uh, stretch across the globe. So we start with India, South Africa, uh, Uganda, Kenya, and Ghana. Um, and there is a big difference between the African countries and India. India is ready for and enthusiastic about these changes. Uh, the Indian state, the Indian government want to engage in, they want to respond to their enthusiastic audience for these sorts of changes. So it's happening, the shift that I talked about is happening at great speed uh, in India uh, on, on an enormous scale. Although having said that, there are also differences between Indian states. Some states are more enthusiastic than others. So one has to be aware of scales of, um, of shift. In Africa, it's, it's not quite the same. The states in Africa, particularly, say, Ghana and um, Uganda to an extent, are, are not as enthusiastic uh, for these sorts of changes. Not necessarily in, in any kind of ideological sense, but sometimes more in the sense of the capability of the state for engaging with these sorts of changes. So the, the, the extent of penetration of these changes is different there. South Africa is somewhere between. South Africa is clearly moving in this direction, but not at the pace of India. And the South African state, again, is diverse. Two provinces in South Africa are much more enthusiastic than other parts of the country. So it's, it's the same, but different at the same time. Right. And so in the Indian case, for example, what, what is the rationale behind the desire for privatization or why are they enthusiastic, as you say? I think there are three things um, happening in India. There is, there is a, a, and has been over the last uh, couple of decades, a very um, strong accumulation of criticisms 
uh, around the state services. There's now a very well-established set of critical positions which are widely held, widely articulated, that for exa- in, the, in the example that we're looking at, that uh, state schools in India are not as effective as they should be, that they have a number of problems. Um, you, you, you mustn't necessarily take that at, at face value because um, it is a constructed position, a, a kind of critique advocacy position. It, it has some foundation to it, but you mustn't just take it off the peg as though this is an account of how things actually work. The second factor is that India is the youngest country in the world. It has uh, the largest number of young people between the ages of 15 and 24 of any country in, in the world. So there's a huge and increasing demand for education uh, at all levels, which the state can't respond to. It, it can't afford to respond to. Um, it doesn't have the, the, the budget to be able to create, in particular, higher education opportunities for that huge number of, of uh, young people. So there's this unfilled demand which is moving through the system. And the third factor which, which relates to that is that India is the fastest growing economy in the world and uh, the Indian government are engaged in a whole raft of initiatives to link up education to the economy. Particularly there's the three of them, there's one called Digital India, there's Skill India and there's Startup India. And the Indian government see enterprise, the private sector, as a key resource in providing these uh, skills and education that are, are needed for further economic growth. And they also see the methods of enterprise and the dissemination of those methods and sensibilities across the population as key to maintaining this huge, very high level of economic growth. So those factors come together Uh, to mean that the state is very receptive to these ideas. And so, in a sense, the privatization offers policies that will solve these problems in India. That's how some of the policymakers interpret it? Is that, would that be correct? Well, that, they do, but that is certainly, that is exactly the argument that the advocates make. So the, the advocates for change, for privatization, for the involvement of the private sector in education delivery, make the point, drawing on um, Bill Gates' notion of social capitalism, as he calls it, the argument that the private sector can solve problems that the state has not been able to solve. That the private sector is more effective, it's more efficient, it produces better outcomes, it is uh, more disciplined. And if you bring those things into play in relation to the public services, you will drive up standards in education or healthcare or wherever it happens to be. So that's the key argument that's being made. And there are a whole set of both global and local advocacy groups, uh, organizations operating in India who present and disseminate that view of change, the necessity for involving the private sector. So it becomes kind of like the dominant social imaginary of how we view education, the problems of education, and therefore the solutions of education. It, exactly. That the, these, um, what we're talking about here is a market in solutions. And there are various organisations, both uh, charitable, philanthropic organisations and businesses who say, we have the solution, we know how to make the education system better. If you let us run it, then we can do it better than than the way it's being run at the moment. 
And that is operating in two ways. One is there's an enormous growth of, of private schooling in India, developing at incredible speed and pace. And that's responding to, to demand and, and the search for privilege uh, by some parents. Uh, particularly, they want English language education rather than indigenous education. They want education that will give their children uh, more direct access to advantaged labour market positions. So there's a lot of money being fl flowing into to, to private schooling. On the other hand, the uh, the private sector are also, uh, if you like, selling or offering solutions to public sector schools, digitalisation and assessment and other forms of technology in particular are seen to be the solutions, together with um, models of public-private partnerships where businesses or third sector organisations actually take over the running of state schools. And in the, in, in the major cities in India that's developed quite quickly in uh, Mumbai, Pune, uh, Delhi, Bangalore, Hyderabad. There are now state schools, uh, groups of state schools, which are, are being run by third-party organisations. And how do these how do these ideas um, around privatization and, and this sort of logic that you're explaining for the advocates of privatization? How do these policies end up moving kind of globally? So not just in India, because you know you mentioned Bill Gates and com private companies that are trying to enter the even the public market. So how do the, some of these policies end up moving globally? That's really the, the key points of, of the book. That's what we're trying to understand. We're trying to understand policy mobility. How do these policies get moved around the world? Who does it? What are the mechanisms involved? And when you, when you look at that, what you see are, is the recurrence of some key organisations and, and key people joined up in a global network among themselves and also with related local organisations. So, for example, across Africa and India, uh, in different ways, you, you see the Michael and Susan Dell Foundation cropping up in all sorts of uh, areas of activity. They operate in three locations, which are the USA, uh, South Africa and India. Uh, and in one sense, what they're doing is exporting ideas uh, from the United States, particularly structural ideas like the model of charter schooling, which is being translated into these contracted out schools in, in Mumbai and elsewhere. Uh, and also notions like blended learning, the use of technology in relation to classroom learning, which is linked to forms of assessment. And they're being exported as good ideas as well. So Michael and Susan Dell Foundation are very, very active in India. They're active in supporting third, uh, third sector organisations like Akansha Schools, which is a uh, a group of um, not-for-profit social enterprise schools, uh, but also things like impact investing. They invest in educational startup companies, and their model is that they target companies who are addressing the needs of low-income urban families, and they will provide startup money together with other organisations which enable these companies to develop apps or develop um, uh, private kindergartens or, or develop uh, systems of teacher support, uh, cur uh, curriculum development, which are then sold to both the public and the private sector. So they, for example, they are one example of a, an organisation with, with global reach who through their networks and through their activities in South Africa and in India, relocate these ideas together with local partners 
into the new context. So in, in India, they work very closely with a whole range of organisations, but one example would be the Central Square Foundation, which is a venture philanthropy run by a very influential uh, Indian entrepreneur turned venture uh, philanthropist, Ashish Dwan. And one of their many relationships is an organisation called the Educational Alliance, and that's committed to advocating public-private partnerships as a solution to educational problems. So that's one example. In, in the book, we look at other examples. Uh, we look at the work of, of Pearson, Pearson Education, in particular the Pearson Affordable Learning Fund, which invests in, again, education startups and uh, low-cost private schools in Africa and in India. We look at IDP Rising Schools, which is a microfinance organisation based in Chicago that's uh, providing microfinance support for private schools in Ghana. So these are uh, organisations, businesses, uh, foundations that have links and relationships across the globe and through those links and partners and initiatives and programmes they are able to move what they see as ideas about good education and solution to education problems around the globe. So I can see how a lot of, you know, this shift from government to governance in these examples that you're giving with the Dell Foundation and linking up with local partners and these ideas are able to spread um, globally. But can you talk a little bit about, you know, what is the role of the, the nation state here? What is the role of national policymakers? Because obviously they're not going away. It's not like they're, we're not losing government. They're, it's just taking on a new role, I would imagine. That's right. That's exactly right. It's, it's not a loss of governing capacity. It's a change in the way governing takes place. So rather than governing through central mechanisms which are organised and delivered through bureaucratic and administrative systems at the national and local level, this now is in, in effect evolving or contracting out that those activities to third-party organisations, foundations or businesses. So the, the state remains key in this, but, but it, it begins to operate in a different way. So that the, the state in this, at one level it's displaced by, by the market in that it, it, it withdraws increasingly from the direct delivery of services. But in another sense it's actually key to the market in terms of creating the conditions in which market forces can operate, and the private sector or the third sector can operate. So it's, it's, it's changing, reworking the boundaries between the economy and the state. Things that were seen previously as um, exclusively the, 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 the business of the state are now being seen as things that can be done by other organisations, either independently or, as I said before, on contract to the state, and what the state does is create the possibilities for a market to develop, in part by becoming a, a purchaser, a commissioner of services, but also alongside that a monitor, a regulator, a target setter. So the state, at least in relation to, to public sector services, is able to make demands, create expectations about what it wants from these providers. Obviously that's more difficult um, in relation to... Um, uh, privately run, entirely privately run provision. But nonetheless, there are in each of these states uh, systems of regulation which are more or less effective 
which frame the provision of, uh, of schooling by private uh, companies. The question is how, how that works in, in practice. There's a lot of uh, issues in India about how well the regulations uh, for the delivery of schooling are uh, enforced. You know, issues about whether children have space in which to play, how much space there is in the classroom for each child, uh, the, the, the curriculum that's being delivered, the extent to which the state can actually develop some uh, monitoring infrastructure in relation to those things is, remains problematic. But nonetheless, the, the state is a key market maker in all of this. If the state doesn't change, then very little is, is possible. So if you look at Ghana compared with India, the Ghanaian state is a, a fairly slow-moving, I hesitate to say ineffective, but it, it's, it's not a very uh, effective state. Uh, and in that sense, it, it, it's not creating a lot of opportunities for these other uh, forms of delivery and activity. So are some of these global actors in this network kind of pushing these different ideas in these different national contexts, are they aware of how they are changing the state or in their intent to change the state to be market makers and be kind of conducive to the growth of privatization? Are, like, are they actually aware of that or is that just kind of happening un, unknown to them? Many of the, the larger global organizations are, are increasingly aware, self-conscious about that. If you look on the Michael and Susan Dale Foundation website, they talk about being in the business of system transformation. Huge kind of claim and ambition they make. They want to change education systems and they talk about themselves as being disruptive. So they want to disrupt taken for granted models of education and healthcare. So they are. Um, if you look at Pearson, a private company, uh, they now see themselves as a policy actor. They don't see themselves as having a, an indirect um, relationship to the state, they see themselves as part of the policy making process. And they talk about themselves on their website as part of a, a global consensus and contributing to a global consensus about education education policy. And of course the consensus is, is one that um, clearly relates to their, their interests. But they've, they've rebranded themselves, Pearson, now as a social purpose company. They don't present themselves as a business, but they talk, them, talk about themselves on their website. Fascinating thing to look at their website. Social purpose company that is, is contributing to the improvement of the learning of young people around the world. The whole issue about business and profit and stock, uh, shareholders has kind of receded into the background. And now this is all about, as, as, as Bill Gates uh, and others uh, presented it, the idea of doing well by doing good making money out of bringing about positive social change, which is the basis of impact investing. So the argument is you can, you can actually make money and profits, but at the same time, you can, you can uh, serve social purposes. So yes, they, they do. That There is a consciousness of this. Um, if you look at the Central Square Foundation I've mentioned earlier, they are actively involved in trying to change the way the state operates. And increasingly, the representatives of, uh, of these organisations and others, like Boston Consulting Group, ARC, uh, which is a British financially-based charity, Absolute Return for Kids, they are engaged in policy conversations with government. 
they are writing reports, they are doing evaluations, they are giving advice, they are providing solutions for government. So these are now not uh, second-order relationships. These are direct involvements in the work of the state, in state work. And even though they have pushed the profit motive maybe in the background, I mean, do you think that's still the, the main reason these private entities are involved? Certainly the, the, the businesses per se, there is a clear relationship to uh, the issue of profit. If you look at um, Pearson again, Pearson is the largest education business in the world. It has an annual turnover of over five billion pounds sterling a year. It's, it's massive. It is the, the biggest. operates across the world uh, in almost every country. They now have one of the areas of, of their uh, activity, partly through the Pearson Affordable Learning Fund, is to address what is called the bottom of the pyramid. That is the idea that poor people still have money that they are willing to spend on things like education. And that particularly in areas like technology, the technology market on the whole is very highly saturated. And low-income families are a relatively untapped market for technology. So businesses like Pearson, companies like Dell, I should make the point that the Dell Corporation is a separate entity from the Michael and Susan Dell Foundation, but both, both headed by Michael Dell, um, there's clearly a, an enormous interest in uh, particularly uh, selling technology of various kinds to these low-income families, to the bottom of the pyramid. So this is capital uh, seeking new markets, restless capitalists, as um, Marx called it. This is exactly what's happening, it's seeking out these new markets, seeking out new areas of, new areas of profit. So it's the bottom of the pyramid is one area. The other area is the state. If the state's paying our contracts, states are normally very dependable, they're good payers, they're reliable, good flow of income. So that's, that's another source of income. And if you can do state work, if you can also do policy work as well as delivering services, billions of dollars around the world are now spent by governments on uh, ed education and other policy activities which are paid to, in particular, to the, the four big uh, management consultancy companies, uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers, Ernst & Young, uh, Accenture and KPMG. Um, most of us have no idea how much our governments pay to these companies to run the country in various ways. So yes, profit, profit is everywhere. And one of, one of the things in the book, one of the themes in the book and one of the chapters is uh, called Follow the Money. So this, this, um, the networking analysis we do in part is grounded in the flows of money. Who has it? Who do they give it to or what do they invest it in? What profits there are to be earned? What um, startups are being supported? So one of the, the, the arguments we're trying to make in terms of policy analysis is that it's all very good talking about ideas and, and uh, models and policy processes and uh, new forms of policy relationships. We also need to follow the money. We also need to read the financial pages. We need to look at the, the stocks and shares. Uh, we need to understand the operation of financial, uh, global financial markets. If we're going to do global policy analysis, that has to be part of our framework. Call me a cynic, but I, I'm very skeptical of these, you know, 
these for-profit businesses using the discourse of doing good and helping society and you know bringing better education to children but at the same time that the underside of that is that there are they are trying to get to that bottom pyramid and get the state to pay for educational services and so I don't know it just makes me very nervous to to kind of see this discourse that could you know like how could you disagree with giving children better education I mean you I don't think you can um, but at the same time when it's you know it's covering or veiling the the for-profit motive I, I get very skeptical you're right it's it's very difficult to say okay all these are bad things you know, terrible things are happening because people are making profits out of education or whatever if we can see some positive effects and, and clearly there are some positive effects but I think we also have to suspend judgment about that to some extent there are clearly some examples of bad practice um, what uh, one British Prime Minister once called the unacceptable face of capitalism. Capitalism is not essentially a benign uh, force. And the bottom line for particularly public companies is their share price, uh, their profitability. Their prime responsibility is to their shareholders, not to their clients. Uh, and when that comes into play, when, when, when profits are being made, uh, when the business is running well, then, then, then fine, things may operate very smoothly. But when, when there are difficult financial uh, situations, then, then that can mean that decisions are made uh, in the interests of uh, shareholders rather than the interests of the state or the interests of, uh, of children. An example recently uh, in, in Sweden, the Swedish uh, education system allows for private companies to run state schools on contract. They're paid per pupil by the government. And about 20% of Swedish school students attend such schools, independent schools. Still part of the, the public sector, but run by private companies. And this was initially seen, and to some extent, was very profitable for these private sector companies. And, and a, a group of about five quite large companies took up the running of most of these schools. And one of them, the largest one, John Bauer, was in 2009 uh, bought by a, a Danish private equity company called Axel, whose previous investments were mainly in the areas of housing, fashion and pet food. But they thought this would be a good addition to their portfolio for their private investors. 2014, financially things had changed a bit. Axel no longer saw delivery of schooling as an area of profitability and in February 2014 announced they were closing all the John Bauer schools as of that year. 36 schools. So suddenly the Swedish government were confronted with 36 of their schools, uh, several tens of thousands of students um, who might have no school at all. But this was another country, a Danish company, private equity company making decisions about profitability which nonetheless had enormous implications for state schooling in in Sweden and the state uh, the Swedish state had little or no ability to to influence the decision making of this company that's a stark example but it does demonstrate when the the issues that can arise when the bottom line comes into play. And it's also the case that the more the private sector gets involved, then the more opaque some issues about both decision-making and uh, outcomes and effects become. The key example here, perhaps, uh, is 
what is, and we talk about this in the book, the, the world's largest private school company, Bridge International Academies. They now have over 400 schools, mainly in Kenya, but they did have schools in Uganda, they're opening schools in Nigeria, and in two states in India. They monitor the performance of their children in their schools very carefully. All the teaching and learning is done through apps. The children do tests um, each day or after each lesson. The, The data is fed back to Boston, an analysis is done, and this is used as a kind of data analytics to feed back to the, to the school. But all of that data is, is produced and controlled by Bridge. So all that we know about the performance of Bridge schools is what Bridge tells us about the performance of Bridge schools. So th- there are issues like that which come into play as well, which is whose data are we talking about, how do we know that these outcomes are effective, What are the other issues around who it is that attend these schools? Are they comparable with the local state schools? Because Bridge do make comparisons with what they say are equivalent uh, state schools in their locality. But all of that is is done in-house. So there are a whole range of issues that you need to think about uh, in relation to these things. And and in your work, have you uncovered or have you found any networks that are pushing counter narratives to you know education and how it should be done um i think that that's an omission in the book we we do acknowledge at the beginning of the book that we're we're looking at the the, if you like the pro market networks i mean what's interesting and perhaps not surprising if you look at the networks themselves and there are a lot of they're both some big network pictures in the book which are very difficult to read but then we break those down into smaller subsections so you can look at those um, is the absence of both uh, some of the usual suspects, so they're, they're not all that much participation from multilaterals. Some, uh, World Bank appears uh, a little bit, but some of the OECD a little bit, but not very much. But what, what is distinctly absent uh, are the, the more, if you like, uh, progressive uh, NGOs that are operating with somewhat different models of development or models of practice. So we don't look at those, partly because they're absent. We do note in passing that in relation to Bridge, a, uh, a group of around 40 NGOs of different kinds have created an alliance which has developed a critique of Bridge uh, and its practices related to questions about human rights and have been very effective, particularly in convincing the Ugandan government uh, to stop allowing Bridge to run schools. And also I've been p- putting pressure on the Kenyan government to do, do the same. And two counties in, in Kenya um, have actually stopped the Bridge from running schools. So there, there is a counter-movement, and, and they, they do articulate a, a different, I suppose, more traditional welfare public sector model of schooling, although some of them are arguing for more radical models like cooperative models, community models of schooling, that the alternatives are not that well articulated. And don't necessarily have the same global network. That They have a network, but basically they're often talking to themselves. Um, so they meet together, they communicate together, they send out press releases, make do reports, but very often it's difficult for them to get into the, these these policy networks. I mean, the same thing applies that uh, 
looking at these these uh, networks of um, private philanthropic provision, they're very they're very inward looking. There, there, there is a a discourse which is is very well set, and basically to to join, you have to sign up. Uh, to the discourse because otherwise people don't recognize what you're saying you have to be able to speak the language of the network you have to be able to recognize the the, the basic assumptions of, of the network so uh, again they're very much t- talking to themselves but they have a lot more money available and in many ways a lot more influence through uh, relationships to government, speaking at the World Economic Forum, the WISE uh, Education Summit and other major events where they are talking directly to uh, national and international policymakers. The NGOs don't get the same opportunities to do that. Well, it's, it's just a very fascinating look at privatization and what it's doing inside schools and how this policy is moving around around the world. So, Stephen Ball, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. It was really great to talk today. Uh, nice of you to invite me, and uh, yeah, I enjoyed talking to you. Nice to meet you. Stephen Ball is a distinguished service professor at the Institute of Education, University College London. His latest co-written book is entitled edu.net, Globalization and Education Policy Mobility, which was published by Routledge in April. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Yuval Devere, and Hong Zhong. Aggie Hu is Fresh Ed's social media coordinator, and original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>